Lonely song, the song's for you. It's amazing how life is for us, how it works out. This morning, I got up and did all the stuff that I have to do in the mornings. Well, not all of the stuff, but started to do the stuff that I have to do in the morning to prepare to be here. And one of the things after taking care of the animals and so on and so forth is to take care of myself. And so I made some miso soup. I remember one time somebody heard that I ate miso soup for breakfast. And they said, who eats soup for breakfast? Ooh, that just sounds so gross. Soup for breakfast. Wow. What an amazing world we live in. We have all these acquired things that miso soup for breakfast is an icky thing, but coffee and some kind of a donut. Probably not that many people have pizza for breakfast that are over 18. When you're 18, I'm sure you have cold pizza for breakfast. Or when you're younger than that. I had pizza for breakfast two days ago. You had pizza. Okay, so, and Italians, what can I say? All right, so maybe I should... Actually, it was lunch. I'm sorry. It was lunch, so you lied. I lied. Anything to make me look bad. But that's all right. No, it's my mind. What mind? We're going to talk a little bit about the mind today. Anyway, I settled in. I was going to read a little bit. As I had my soup, I was going to read a little bit and prepare for meditation. You know, I like to read something C.S. Lewis has written or Teresa de Avila, something somebody has written, or just listen to uh, a little bit of the Bible or something, and then just kind of prepare myself for meditation. So I went to pick up my Kindle, and it's got that flip cover on it. You close the cover, and the Kindle goes to sleep, and you open it, and it wakes up, which is really nifty. But I grabbed it, and it's the little device. It's not that big. And I grabbed it, and I had my miso soup sitting on the end table, and I grabbed it from the end table. And as I did, the cover flipped open, and I was holding onto the cover, but the Kindle swung and knocked the miso soup over. So the miso soup went all over the rug, and I found myself really agitated. And I thought, what is this about? And as I was cleaning everything up, I thought, well, it's about wasting food. I really don't like wasting food. And so here's all this food, which isn't really that much. I mean, anyone who knows anything about miso soup knows that there's a cup of water, a teaspoon of three-year barley miso, a little piece of wakami seaweed, some sliced vegetables, usually a root vegetable, and then a yin vegetable, an above-the-ground vegetable, like celery or whatever. And that's it, pretty much. And there's not much. I mean, it's not like a meal. It's just kind of like this broth with a few vegetables floating in it, if you've done it right. And so it's not really that much to waste. But I still wanted to be agitated about it. There was something inside of me that still was agitated about this. And so I had to come to terms with this. And the way I came to terms with it was, well, you know, you can waste this food. I was going to throw it out because once it's on the rug, it's probably not a good idea to eat it off the rug, you know. (laughs) So I'm throwing it out. And as I put it in the sink, I thought, you know, this doesn't have to be wasted. You could throw it in the compost or you can take it as a lesson of how little it takes for us to sell our peace of mind. See, I'm preparing for meditation. So what kind of a preparation is this agitation? It's not preparation. It's agitation for meditation. How often do you do that? Tell the truth. How often do you agitate to meditate? We don't sit around and meditate. We sit around and agitate. So I think it's kind of funny, but that was my way of coming to terms with this. Now, you've heard that this work must become emotional. And, you know, we've said that so often, so many times for so many years, but it really isn't that meaningful. 
So let's see if we can squeeze a little bit more meaning from that phrase this morning. Morris Nichols said, Unless you feel the beauty of the work, unless you desire it as something lovely, it cannot make right contact with you. Which means you can't make contact with higher centers. Okay, that still doesn't tell us a lot. But it tells us a little bit more than this work must become emotional. Unless you feel the beauty of the work, unless you desire it as something lovely. I've taught this for a long, long time, from the early 70s. I've seen a lot of people take this work. I've seen a lot of people read the books and get excited about it and buy all the books and not read them. I've seen it all. Well, of course, not it all, but I've seen a lot about how people take this work. And I cannot really remember anyone taking the work where they feel the beauty of the work and desire it as something lovely. I've seen people take it intellectually. I've seen people take it in other ways, but not in that way, not very often. We expect poets and artists and other people that work at McDonald's to feel beauty. But ordinarily, we have a very limited idea of beauty when it comes to life. Of course, a poet is off in an unreal world, and an artist is off in an unreal world where they see beauty in things, and that's their job. And that's why they work at McDonald's, because they're worthless in life. That's how we look at people like that. I got an email this morning, and it was an update from a blog from a person I've known for years, 10 years anyway. And uh, like this little thing, you know, this little graphic and, you know, the things they send around on the Internet. It's this image with the words pasted over it or put over it, and it's blessed are the misfits and the artists and the poets and the yada, 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 yada. Because from them we learn how to see. And I thought, that's such a beautiful sentiment, and it's true. But unfortunately, we don't learn. Unfortunately, we don't think much of those people. Oh, we think something of them from time to time. But in the real world, we don't really care much for them. Because their head's in the clouds, and our mortgage is here on the ground. Their heads are in the clouds, but the reality of life is different. So we don't learn much from them. Instead, we try to teach them that they need to get their heads out of the clouds and get their feet firmly planted on the ground. That never works out so well, but we try anyway. Perhaps you've heard mathematic formula or scientific theory referred to as beautiful or elegant. Let me just remind you of what elegant is. The dictionary definition of elegant is pleasingly ingenious and simple. The formula, the mathematic formula, the scientific theory that are referred to as beautiful or elegant generally come from a beautiful mind. You remember the movie, A Beautiful Mind. Golfers can have a beautiful swing. But unless you're a golfer, you hardly notice. Footballers, people who play football, if you've ever seen a good quarterback and his best receiver, there is a beauty and a poetry in the pass and the reception of that pass. It's like there's an intuition. It's like there's this invisible connection with these two. And here's this ballet in the midst of a chaotic field where it looks like everybody's running this way and that way. And here's this ballet of intention where the quarterback is focused on where his receiver will be. And he's focused on making sure that that ball is where his receiver can touch it with his fingertips and pull it to his chest and make whatever ground they can make. And really, when you look at it, it's really a beautiful thing. But I don't know how many people really see that. If you look at slow motion playbacks, 
you can catch the beauty in almost anything. You look at a hummingbird when they do the slow-mo and hear these little wings beating so quickly that you can't really see anything except the blur until they slow the camera down so much that you can see this happening and it's like, wow, it's just hovering there, almost still, but at the same time moving so quickly that you can't see it or barely see it. It's just a blur. I guess you can see beauty in that. Chess players can have elegant moves where a chess player makes a move and other chess players say, wow, it just boggles their minds that someone thought of something so elegant, so sublime. To a beautiful mind, it goes on and on. To a beautiful mind, beauty and elegance are everywhere. There's a certain beauty in everything which can't be imitated by seriousness. When I say seriousness, I mean solemn or thoughtful in character or manner, demanding careful consideration or application. Not necessarily a bad thing. There are people who are serious about painting a wall, and so they cut in all the corners, they cut in around the baseboard and up at the ceiling, and they make great lines, nice straight lines, and they don't slop the paint all over. They don't spill everywhere. They put down a cloth. And there are other people who just slap it on there. You have to admit that the one who does it in a thoughtful manner, demanding careful consideration or application, in his own way, has a beautiful way of doing things. But you'll have to admit that there's a certain kind of beauty which cannot be imitated by seriousness. Though you might never know it by observing many attracted to this work, to receive it very heavily and seriously is useless. You've seen the type who takes it all so seriously that they turn it into stone-cold sets of rules they use as marble steps to get above everyone else in the group. The work will never give itself to that kind of mind. A flower gives itself to a hummingbird or a bee. It simply opens itself up and it gives itself. There's some kind of symbiotic something. The flower is getting something and the bee or the hummingbird is getting something. There's an exchange, a synchronicity, a symbiosis. The work needs that in order to take root in you, in order to pollinate you, as it were. The work needs you to open up to it and receive it beautifully. To take this work negatively is useless. To receive this work from fear or duty is useless. To receive it formatorily is useless. Certainly, to study it for merit is worse than useless. It's spiritually criminal. There's a lot of crime that goes on with this work. I know. I've been in a lot of different parts of the world. Europe, Asia, Eastern Europe. And I have seen what people have done with this work. And it is truly criminal. I think that if Gurdjieff could see it today, he would weep. I think if Dr. Nichol could see it today, he would weep. I think that anyone who loved the work, who saw its beauty, who appreciated everything about it as something lovely, like a perfect mathematic formula or an elegant theory, I think that they would weep. I think that if Jesus was sitting here today and he saw what Christianity was in our world, first of all, I don't think he'd really recognize it. Oh, that's not what I taught. We've all seen this. I've said something and then have someone else say in front of the whole group what they heard. And it was the exact opposite of what was said. And the person could not be convinced that what they heard was not what was said. And the reason is because it didn't fall on a beautiful mind. 
it fell on one of those serious minds, one of those minds that takes everything in a heavy way, heavily and seriously. That kind of mind has a very difficult time seeing beauty in anything that doesn't enhance self. Because when you think about it, that kind of mind comes from self-interest. Where am I in the big scheme of things? Am I above this person? Is that person further on than me? Do I understand more? Do I understand less? Am I going to... Blah, 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 blah. A man who sees no beauty has no connecting link between higher centers and lower centers. Seeing beauty in something is to love it. When a football fan goes tailgating, the weather doesn't matter. It could be snowing, sleet, rain. They don't care. They don't care. That doesn't matter. One type finds it grueling while the other has an exciting adventure. Perfect example, and I'm so glad that it happened this morning, and again, it's the synchronicity of all this. I look at life and I think, what could be more perfect than what is happening right now? What could be more perfect than all of you doing this ballet, this orchestrating and choreographing this incredible ballet that proves everything that I'm about to say? I love it. For example, Steve comes in, plunks down on the love seat or whatever you call that thing, and the dog jumps up, jumps on the love seat, up on the love seat with him, and it's a love seat. So the dog jumps in his face. Oh, Steve, I love you. And Steve's like, ooh, 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 get away from me. I don't like dogs in my face. Blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know, Steve, you could really have a great time right now and be really happy. Is this what you want? And he got it. The great thing is he got it. That's rare, people. It's rare for someone to listen to wake up in that moment, right then, in that moment, to put themselves aside and say, you know, he's right. And so now he and the dog are friends. The dog comes up and Steve does something he doesn't usually do. He pets him. He treats him like a living being and he interacts with it. To me, that's beautiful. To me, it's beautiful for two reasons. One is because it's just the beauty of communication, the communication of the intelligence behind all living life forms. The unity of being. That's one of the things. And the other thing is that Steve got off it. I mean, that's beautiful to me. And I got to be right. (laughs) We we know that that's always a beautiful thing. Especially if we get to be right and nobody has to be wrong about it. That's the beauty of the truth. When the truth is true, nobody has to be wrong. They can choose to be wrong. They can choose to oppose the truth. And that's sad. But... The truth is still a beautiful thing. Truly a beautiful thing. Seeing beauty in something, anything, I don't care what it is, if it's a flower, if it's a bee, if it's a dog chewing a bone, if it's whatever it is, seeing beauty in it is to love it. Where there's a sense of compulsion, there's no beauty, there's no love, there's no connection with higher centers. A sense of beauty is not a sense of duty. If you approach this work as a sense of duty, after a certain amount of time, It dies in you. It dies. The place in you where it could grow becomes barren and fallow. What we feel is beautiful, we will. No big surprise there. What is love if it is not an act of will? Oh, well, I tell you what love is if it's not an act of will. It's a feeling. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Blah, 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 blah. What idiocy. Those are what the work calls negative emotions. Because that changes. That love, that love changes to its opposite. But this love, what we feel is beautiful, we will. If we do this work through a sense of duty, we've got it wrong. Although at first, we can start like this. For the vast majority of people, 
esoteric ideas are received first through the intellectual center. A minutely small, infinitesimal number of people break out of that prison to the emotional freedom of love and beauty. It's sad how few people break away in one sense. But if you look at it with a beautiful mind, you see that it is glorious that one in a thousand may break away, or one in a hundred thousand, or one in a million, because it is proof positive that it is possible. It is proof positive that there is a connection. The eternal boy of which we spoke last week has a beautiful mind. In the Roman poet Ovid's Metamorphosis, the idea is introduced as a divine youth, the god of vegetation and resurrection. The figure of a young god who is slain and resurrected also appears in Egyptian mythology as the story of Osiris. For many people lacking a beautiful mind, these are the roots of Christianity. Myth. Christianity is not real. This whole idea of a young god slain and resurrected is so old that it must be just another lie. But what a beautiful mind understands is that, no, it's not a lie. It's a universal archetype. Because it's true, it's a universal archetype, and it continues It repeats again and again and again. It is seeded into humanity, into the human race, at different periods, different times, different epochs, different areas, in different ways. Because we need it. And because the absolute is absolutely benign and tender and beautiful. Carl Jung called the eternal boy an archetype, one of the primordial structural elements of the human psyche. He may as well have said of the human spirit or of the spirit behind humans. The shadow of the eternal boy is the god Apollo, the old man. He's disciplined, controlled, responsible, rational, ordered. Dionysus represents the unbounded instinct, disorder, intoxication, and whimsy. As with all archetypes, there are two sides. The divine child who symbolizes newness, potential for growth, hope for the future. And the other side is the child man who refuses to grow up and meet the challenges of life face on, waiting instead for his ship to come in and solve all his problems. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. There are women who, when they're young, they find this divine child and they marry him. And then the divine child ends up being not that. He ends up being the child man who refuses to grow up and meet the challenges of life face on, waiting instead for his ship to come in and solve all his problems. And he becomes either a drunk or a gambler, or both. He's out spending his money on the lottery, he's out doing this, he's out doing that. Anything except what a good householder would do. And he'll never be a good householder. He can't be a good householder because he's this child man who refuses to grow up. This is the negative side of the beautiful mind. This is the negative side of the divine child. This is the negative side of the eternal boy. This is the negative side of, unless you become like little children, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Because where there's a front, there's a back. Where there's one, there's the other. What's the practical application of all these beautiful ideas, though? Well, I can tell you it's a beautiful thing when you realize you have a right not to be negative. I exercised that right this morning. And how did I exercise that right? By being negative? No. By seeing that I was negative over a bowl of miso soup. And by transforming that into a lesson. And that is what this work is. It is taking the negative and using it as food to feed the eternal boy. 
It's a wonderful thing to begin to see. You don't need to identify with all the things with which you are identified. Well, I don't like a dog in my face. That's what you're identified with. You don't need to be. You're right, I don't. I don't like to waste food. You don't need to be identified with that. You're right, I don't. It's a wonderful thing to begin to see that, isn't it? To begin to realize that? Yeah. Suppose when I observe myself right now, I wonder, should I eat less? Maybe I should eat more macrobiotic foods, or do I need meat? They say you need meat. You've got to have the enzymes and this and that in meat. You know, and I just think, well, you know, there have been vegetarians for thousands and thousands of years who lived to be 120 years old. Well, I'm not saying that all of them lived to be 120 years old and that that's been going on for thousands of years, but I am saying that there are people who have lived to be very old and never suffered at all from being vegetarians. It's a fact, though science says, no, that's not true. But science is just another religion. And if you're going to believe that, then you should believe just any old religion, which means you're really going to be conflicted. Whether X is any good in the work or Y is going to get it or not. I observe myself and I see those things. Oh, I wonder if if Diana's ever going to get it. You know, I wonder if she'll ever get it. Diana and I had this little thing where we got together for just a chat. I don't really know if she knew what she wanted to talk about. Whatever it was, it didn't work so well. And she came over, and I said, well, let's go out on the back porch. The sun's shining, and it's nice and warm, and it's a perfect day. Let's go out there. You know, it's like January, and to be able to sit out in the sunshine on a January day in your shirt sleeves is pretty incredible to me. So we sat out there, and I got this email from her later. Dear, yeah, I love you. Thanks for sitting with me yesterday afternoon. You are so patient. I got up from meditation just now in order to get this off to you while I'm in this state of being. I so enjoyed the sunshine, the birds, the company. But what I did not like and did not realize until now was that I was not there. It was the false personality trying to be what it is not. I detest this. I want so much to be real. And it's so difficult at times and other times so easy. The fact that you are not only a good friend, my best friend, but the teacher, that makes it difficult to be real. I apologize for not being better prepared to meet with you, and yet I could not have been better prepared. I'm an idiot. I can say that being unreal is usually my state. What you said yesterday about not thinking so much, being in the moment, not judging myself made an impact. However, my normal state would be to pound this into my mind. Instead, I'm trying to observe and be in the moment when there's thinking, worrying, judging going on. My biggest effort is to move thoughts from the head to the heart and be real. This will last a couple of days, then I'll forget about it. You see, that's me failing. Me failing, but then me not really failing. What I did was I shared being with Diana. And Diana knew something beautiful was happening. But her mind, that mind, could only take it in a serious, heavy way. You know this, I can tell by the really serious, heavy look on your face. Every one of you. You all know this. You all know how you have allowed the beauty of the moment to escape you. And you've tried to capture it and wall it in and bronze it and make a trophy of it. It's sad, isn't it? And you must be able to see your own mind in Diana's email. And it's really tragic. Here's this little boy being in the moment, sharing this moment of life with you. And what do you say? You're so patient. Does the little boy feel patient? Not at all. He's just so delighted to be He's just so happy that the sun is shining, that the grass is green, that the leaves are moving in the breeze, that he gets to be with another human being, that he gets to see the beauty of the connectedness of this whole film of organic life coating this planet. 
that he gets to see that he is part of it and it is part of him. That the microcosm is in the macrocosm and the macrocosm is in the microcosm. And it's all humming. It's the breath of God. Every time God exhales, there's this music of the spheres. There's this whole universe and universes that are exhaled into being in perfect harmony. And it takes a certain kind of mind to see that. And you have that mind. You have access to that mind. But instead, you are stuck, you're imprisoned in this other mind, this serious heavy mind, where you have to put your nose to the grindstone and try really hard and struggle with this and struggle with that. Should I make podcasts available to people or is it a waste of my time and energy? These are some more things that I look at and I observe in myself. This is a resume of my power of self-observation at the moment, which you too should have. With all these things, I'm a victim due to identification. Identification takes force from you the whole time you're identified. And it's a beautiful thing to realize you don't need to be identified with these small things. It was a glorious thing to realize you didn't have to be identified with the dog being in your face, that you could be like a little kid and enjoy the dog. But instead, at first, the serious heavy man remembers that he had a dog and he had to shoot it. And he decided to never get close to a dog again because of the pain of that. Every act of non-identification saves force. It requires a conscious act, which means you become conscious that you're identified with something. You know, this is really so simple. It really is elegant in simplicity. It's beautiful. When you do, you draw force from it and cease to identify. Every time you non-identify, no matter what it is, you're drawing force from it and you cease to identify. You realize, you become conscious of the fact that you are identified with something. Rather than making that a big, serious, heavy thing, that's the light thing. That's the beauty. But you're so busy being serious and heavy that you miss the beauty. You miss the light part of it. The non-identify means you take force from that with which you're identifying. You can't not identify without a certain degree of self-remembering. External life makes us identify everywhere and at every point. It makes us do it. It like twists our arm up behind our back and forces us to identify with everything all the time. You're worried about the economy or the government, the direction the world is going, blah, 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 blah. It's all useless. You're not going to change any of it. You can learn nothing from being identified. It stops you from understanding. It's why I've talked to Rex so many times about ranting about the government. Look, if you're going to rant about something, enjoy the rant. Don't take it seriously. I rant a lot. And then at the end of the rant, I let it go and I laugh because I realize it means nothing. It's just like, you know, the pressure cooker. It's just like, well, the pressure's built up a little too much. Let off some of that steam and then get happy again. Or be happy while you're ranting, which I always am because I find a way to rant elegantly, to rant beautifully, which is why you enjoy my rants. There's a certain comedy, there's a certain irony about my rants because they are so opposite of what I'm about. And that contradiction is just, I mean, let's face it, what is funny? Contradiction is funny. Worrying about all that stuff is useless. The more you're identified with someone in the name of trying to help them, the less you'll understand them. This is why proselytizing, evangelizing, converting is such an absurd idea. Because what happens is you become identified with the people that you're trying to help. And then you can't understand them. What point is there in that? It's like force feeding. It doesn't work. There's great beauty in realizing that identifying is the only emotion that we know. The emotion of being identified. And let me tell you that it is a negative emotion. Can you see the old man at work in identifying? The Apollo? Can you see the eternal boy realizing that it's unnecessary to be identified 
and that you have the sanctions of esoteric teachings to not identify? You have the right not to be identified? You have the right not to be negative? There's great beauty here, and it has something to do with connecting to higher centers. It's not only that you must not identify. That puts it in the form of a commandment. Notice how the old man mind does that all the time. Always wants rules, regulations, commandments. I must, I have to, I duty, 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 duty. I have to force this. There are no commandments of that kind in esoteric teachings. Not of that kind. The beauty is realizing you have the right not to be negative, not to be identified. Without that realization, you can't remember yourself. All self-remembering has to do with the fact that you came down to this earth, to this life, and it doesn't correspond with what you came from. What you came down from into what you came down into, they don't correspond. They're not the same. The same laws don't govern those two different places. Nothing is the same. They do not correspond. Something in you knows this. Something in you hasn't forgotten this. It remembers it. That's self-remembering. It's remembering where you came from. It's remembering you don't have to identify with this because it's not yours. Identifying makes everything ugly. A beautiful bowl of miso soup. Beautiful slices of daikon. Beautiful half-moon slices of celery. Beautiful veil, flowing little veil of wakami. And it all turns so ugly on the rug. The sense of beauty connects us with two worlds of spirit and matter. And so it has to do with the intermediary, the eternal boy. So when you think about this mind that you need to enter into, this mind that awaits you, it's waiting for you. It is waiting for you in the nursery, but you're too busy with business to go into the nursery. You're too busy making money. You're too busy making rules. You're too busy doing all the things that life requires of you to just go into the nursery and play with the little boy and not think, oh, now I'm playing. Now I'm in that mind. Just to be. Do you get what this intermediary is now? Last week we talked about the intermediary, and I didn't feel like we really got enough into what it is. But that's what it is. That's what the eternal boy is. It's ancient. This has been in esoteric teachings for thousands of years. Unless you become like a little child, this work will be meaningless to you. All that you do in it will be useless. You are the best in matter.